I like that roll in. Uh, so we're talking about in this series uh, being a control freak. And uh, we're probably somewhat all in the same boat when it comes to being a control freak. We talked about it last week, how we either work with a control freak, we date a control freak, we're married to a control freak, we're friends with a control freak, or maybe we are a control freak. And even if you're not a control freak, uh, you, everybody likes to have some level of control. Everybody likes to have people do things basically the way they want them done. They, they have, you know, they want situations to be handled that you want them to be handled the way you want them to be handled. I mean, I, I'm going to tell you what to do. We all probably share that. You would just listen to me, right? You would just do what I say, listen to me, things would go better. Things would be handled much smoother. And the reality, like we talked about last week, the reality is this. Yeah, I was created and you were created to be a control freak. Seriously. God has given us permission to be a control freak. But the catch is that we're only called to be a control freak in one area of our lives, and that is in the area of self-control. Control over myself, me, myself, and I, right? And self-control, it's a spiritual discipline that really is a measuring stick. It kind of acts like a marker in our lives, if you will, for a life that is growing in a relationship with God. But here's the real talk, like we talked about last week. I can't do it on my own. I don't have the strength. I don't have the ability to have self-control. I can't do it. I may can fake it for a little while, maybe a day, a week, who knows, maybe even a month. But given time, I'm going to lose control. I'm going to lose self-control on my own. And this is why. Because to possess self-control, it has to come through God's Spirit. We talked about that in a series a few uh, months ago. Talked about it a little bit last week. That if I'm going to have self-control, it's going to have to come from God's Spirit. It can't happen because of me. Because on my own, I'm going to fail. Self-control only happens in our lives as we continue in this step-for-step journey, walking with and connecting with God through His Spirit. Paul even talked about it in Galatians chapter 5. Um, verse 22. We talked about this verse last week. This is the verse where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And, and this is what it says. Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit. So um, the results of a life that's connected to God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is, and he gives this list, these nine things. It's joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and then self-control, the thing that we're talking about in this series. And Paul says against such things there, there is no law. Paul's telling us in these passages, very simply, that there's always going to be some markers in a life that is connected to and growing in a relationship with God. And one of those is self-control, the topic for our series this month. They don't just appear all at once. It's a process. Happens slowly over time. Increases little by little. And self-control is one of those nine markers that Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5. So we've defined self-control. To try to make this series fit and to flow, we've given self-control a definition. We actually took the definition from Dr. Henry Cloud. Great definition. And this is what Dr. Henry Cloud said, self-control. This was a good definition. He said, self-control is the capacity to say yes to yourself and no to yourself at the right time. Just the capacity to say yes and no when the situation calls for it. That's self-control. And all of us struggle with it. Everyone in this room struggles with self-control. Everyone watching online, sir, I struggle with self-control. and Because at the root, at its root, self-control is really just us being a good steward of what God has given us. We're just being a good steward. And what I mean by that is when Jesus walked on the earth, really a steward was just simply understood to be a manager of something that didn't belong to him or didn't belong to her. If you were a good steward of it, you were managing something that wasn't yours. You were just managing it. 
belonged to the owner. And the owner would ask the manager, the steward, to manage that thing the way that the owner would have it to be managed. They would manage it for the owner. So for us, really being a good steward is simply being a good manager of what God has given us to manage. But our question to kind of move into this week's topic on self-control is this. What has God given us to manage? What is it that we are called to be a good steward of uh, and to be a good manager of that we've been given? And in its broadest terms, we've been given a life. I've been given life by God, and I am called to exhibit self-control in many areas of my life that I've been given. God's given me a life to manage, and he's tasked me to manage it as he would manage it. I mean, just think about the life that you've been given and that I've been given. I mean, think about the different elements and the different things that, that we have as a result of this life that we have. We have the ability to respond to our environments. We have the ability to experience things. We grow. We grow mentally, physically. We grow emotionally. We change. We have the ability to change, sometimes for the good, sometimes for the bad. We have the ability to hand down thoughts. We have the ability to hand down character traits and stories to future generations. That's the life that we've been given by God to manage. I have control with the life that I've been given by God. I have control of who to spend my time with. I have control of where to spend my time. I have control of what to spend my time doing. It's up to me to manage. It's up to me to control. So yeah, I'm called to be a control freak. Absolutely. No question. And let's be honest. If we're to be a control freak over our own lives that we've been given by God to manage as he would manage it, isn't the way that I use my time what defines my life? It's not really what I do with the time that I have, basically the sum total of my life. How I pass the time. How, um, what I do with my time, what I have done with my time, what I plan to do with my time, where I spend my time, who I spend my time with, and the decisions that I make concerning my time. That basically, that sums up my life. Those questions and the answers to those questions pretty much sum up the life that I've been given by God to manage, what I do with my time. Consider this. Think about it like this. We are consciously always aware of what time it is. We're always aware of what time it is. Last night, I was doing, um, I was doing a, a softball game for the, for the Stuttgart Lady Ricebergs, which they won a regional championship uh, last night. Great game, a lot of fun, but I was doing the, time, doing the game and, and going through the game, and I'm focusing on the game, you know, and I'm trying to call the game, but the whole time, I'm constantly looking at my clock. What time is it? How late is it going to get? When am I going to get home? We're consciously always aware of what time it is. I, I check my time, what time it is, dozens of times per day. I don't wear a watch. But, I've, man, I've got my phone always ready to go. I mean, I know it's 10.50. I know it's 10.50 a.m. right now. I'm always aware of what time it is. When we're at home, we check the time to see how much time we have left before it's time to go to work or go to school or go to bed or eat. A lot, right? And that's, I check that time all the time. When we're at work or we're at school, we check the time to see how much time we have left before it's time to go home. Or to go to lunch. There's that food again. To, uh, you know, how much time do I have left to finish the project? Right? I mean, uh, I, finals, I, I guess for seniors, they're pretty much done. But for many of uh, you guys in school, finals are, are rolling around. It's time, you know. And you're like, oh, my gosh, I have, how much time do I have left before I have to take that final? I've got to, I've got to study. I've got to prepare. Maybe, maybe you don't. I don't know. But we, we're consciously aware of how much time we have left before it's time to do things. 
Because everything in our life basically revolves around the concept of time. I mean, honestly, many of you guys already this morning, you've checked the time multiple times wondering, when is this guy going to shut up, say amen, so we can go get some food? Right? That's okay. I'm the same guy when Harley's talking and I'm out there. I'm like, is he gonna be? I'm like come on, man. That's enough. We, we're consciously aware of what time it is. We always know, basically, what time it is. We're acutely aware of what time it is, how much time we have, or how much time we need. And here's why. Because time is really our most valuable asset. It's really the only asset that's irreplaceable. It's the only asset that we have that when it's gone, it is gone. And there's no getting it back. There's not enough time. We've got too much time on our hands. Where did time go? We say all of those things because it's our most valuable asset. So we better understand how to manage our time, to be a steward of our time and exhibit self-control over our time. Because if we're called to be a manager of this life that we've been given by God and our life, our time is our life, then yeah, we're supposed to be a control freak with the time that we have. We even use words to describe time as if time is an asset. We use words to describe time as if it's an asset. We say, I am spending time. I'm spending time. All right? We, we say, man, I, I am spending way too much time trying to put this Christmas present together. That happened to Beth and I this past Christmas. We got the girls something for Christmas. I kid you not, 10 hours. 10 hours. Now, a lot of that had to do with my inability to do anything. Beth was leading the charge, and I was just getting in the way. But still, the whole time I'm thinking, this is taking, this is, I'm spending way too much time trying to get this Christmas present together. We, you go on vacation. You get back from vacation. Someone says, what did you do on vacation? You say, oh, sat on the beach, watched the sunset, spent time doing nothing at all. We spend time. We don't just spend time. We, we waste time. We use words like we waste time. We're wasting time. I mean, hey, got to be honest, me trying to lose weight, exercise, eat right, fit back into those old clothes I used to wear 20 years ago, waste of time. Right? Here we go. There's an amen. Waste of time. We waste time. We spend time. We waste time. We invest time. There's one. We invest it. We invest time. You have kids and you say, I'm going to invest time in my children's life. I'm going to invest time so they'll know they're loved and they're cared for. I'm going to invest time into their academic pursuits. I'm going to invest time into their athletic pursuits. I am going to invest my time in my children. Now, you know how I know for 100% sure that we consider time our most valuable asset? The reason, like if all of those do not prove it, this one will, I think. One day, every per person in this room watching online, more than likely, one day, every one of us we are going to do everything that we can. We're going to spend a ton of money because we're going to do everything possible to try to buy some time. We're going to try to buy ourselves some time. We're going to try to buy someone that we love some time. We will spend a lifetime of savings to buy someone or ourselves time. We'll go to the hospital. We'll go to the doctor. We'll have procedures. We, we'll, uh, we'll do drug trials. We'll do everything we possibly can think of all for the purpose of buying time. So if time is our most valuable asset, why aren't we more of a control freak with it? We ask questions like, where is the time? Where does the time go? Where does the time go? I mean, have you ever asked that question? I have. Where does the time go? Man, I just don't know where the time went. Time's flying. Parents, if you have a senior that is about to graduate, or will graduate, I get what, this Friday, next Friday? Coming up quick. You have said in the last few days, probably, where did the time go? It 
I look at that child, and he or she is supposed to be graduating kindergarten right now. And now they are going off to college. Where does the time go? Time is our most valuable asset. It's irreplaceable. And if we're being honest, it always feels like we're running out of time. It just feels like we're running out of it. Let me give you an example. Don't raise your hands because I wouldn't be able to tell anyway. But um, has anyone ever, and you don't have to raise your hands or say anything, but just has anyone ever heard of deathclock.com? Okay, don't do it. Don't go there. You've got your phone right now. You've probably got it queued up, and you're thinking, death clock, don't do it. Deathclock.com is um, it's pretty macabre. It's depressing. Honestly, it's a little creepy. But what it is, because you're very curious, and I like to help, um, deathclock.com is uh, a site online. It's been there a long time, and it basically is just dedicated to telling you when you're going to die. Right? I thought of fun. So what you do at deathclock.com, you put, your, uh, you put your, the day you were born, you put your height and your weight in there. That tells you your BMI. You don't want to know. But it tells you your BMI. Then you tell deathclock.com if you're narcissistic, pessimistic, optimistic, um, fatalistic, whatever. And it will spit out the day you're going to die. Like I said, don't do it. And here's why you shouldn't do it. Because I did. And this is what it said. It said I was going to die on Monday, February the 14th, Valentine's Day, 2056. That's not near enough time. 2056. And then... What it does is it gives you this countdown clock. Seconds. Tick, 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 tick. Deathclock.com. Don't go there. But I just say all of that to illustrate the point that many of us feel like time is slipping away. We feel like we're running out of time. The clock is ticking down. See if you can relate to the words of Job in the Old Covenant. This is it's going to be on the screen. Uh, Job chapter 7, verse 6. This is what Job said. He said, my days fly faster than a weaver's shuttle. They end without hope. Huh. Then he goes on and he says in, in, in chapter 9, he says, My life passes more swiftly than a runner. It flees away without a glimpse of hope, of happiness. We just have this sense that our time is running out. We have this sense that there's a finish line up ahead and we don't have enough time to get everything done that we need to get done before we cross the finish line. And it doesn't just have to be, I'm not just speaking of life in general, I'm just speaking of anything. If you're in college right now, and, and, and finals are imminent, or they may just about have been finished, but you've just gone through finals. You know what I'm talking about, man. I've got to take that test, whether I'm ready or not. I'm running out of time. I feel that way during the week sometimes. Like, hey, Sunday's coming, whether I'm ready or not. I'm running out of time. And something else interesting happens to us as we get older, and as time passes, we begin to realize something in our life. We begin to realize that I'm not really the center of the universe like I thought I was when I was 16. You know, that thing when you're 16, you think you're the center of the universe. And I'm not talking about 16-year-olds at all. I was the same way. And, hey, the world does kind of revolve around you when you're 16. But as we get older, we begin to realize we're not really the center of the universe. And our time is not necessarily all supposed to revolve around us. We, we suddenly, as we get older, we begin to realize that everyone is basically the same. We all basically do the same things. We may do it in a little bit different order. We may do it in a different, little, little different way. But for the most part, we're all pretty much the same. We begin to realize. We realize that, hey, we're born, right? We're born. We go to elementary school. We go to middle school. We go to high school. When we get out of high school, then we have that kind of first convergence or first uh, split that happens. Some people go on to college. Some people directly go into the workforce. Uh, and, and you go to college. You finish that up. And then those two paths pretty much get back together. And everybody's in the workforce. You get a job. You live. You save. You spend. You get married one time, two times, three times, however many times you get married. And, and then eventually most people, not everyone, but most people will have kids. 
Everybody's going to have some kids. You're going to raise your kids. Your kids are going to go through all that stuff too. And then eventually the kids are going to leave. Finally, for some of us, right? Maybe. I don't know. You know kids are finally gone. And, and they're out. They're in college. They're gone. They're doing their thing. They're living their life. And now we're empty nesters. Right? That's the term. I'm an empty nester now. And you're an empty nester. And, and then, finally, pretty much everybody has this same, this same path. We all do the same thing. You're an empty nester. And it's like, okay, finally. What is it? I'm about to do what? Retire. The, uh, re the, the, the retire. Yes. I'm going to relax. I'm going to play golf. I'm going to go fishing. I'm going to go shopping. I'm going to do whatever I want. It's my time. I'm going to retire, and it's going to be awesome. And you do. You retire. We finally retire, and then we golf, we relax, we fish, we get sick, and we die. That's pretty much it. Now, aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Don't you feel better about life? I mean, the focus is this. The point I'm trying to make is this. We just realize we're all the same. At some point, we realize everybody's pretty much doing the same thing the same way. What's the point of life? Why am I here? What's the point? How am I? Everybody's pretty much doing the same thing. I'm basically spending my time doing what everyone else is doing. So what is the point? Now, I promise this morning doesn't have to be a downer, I promise. If you're probably right now, you're thinking, <laughs> should have stayed in bed. It doesn't have to be a downer. Stay with me. Let's look at what God actually says about our time. So we're going to look into the Old Covenant this morning. All of our scriptures are coming from the Old Covenant. We don't do that much here at Stuttgart Harvest Church, but this morning, everything will come out of the Old Covenant. And we're going to read from the oldest psalm in the Bible. Oldest psalm in the Hebrew Bible. It was written about... 1200, 1300 B.C., and it was written by Moses. It was a psalm of Moses. So this psalm that we're about to read is about 3200, 3300 years old. And as much as anyone, Moses is qualified to speak on the topic of time. He's qualified to speak on this topic. And Moses, in this psalm, is really just going to tell us the point of life, the point of our time. He's going to go through that. He's going to tell us um, the whole point of the time that we have, whether it's our entire life in front of us, or not as much. He's going to tell us the whole point. Now, Moses has a really interesting backstory. We don't have time to get into it. Um, time, there it is. I've got to stay focused. But real quickly, Moses was raised as an Egyptian prince. Uh, he, he was raised in the, house of, uh, in, in the house of the Pharaoh of Egypt. Uh, so for the first 20 years or so of Moses' life, I mean, he lived in the lap of luxury, opulence, splendor. I mean, he had anything and everything he could have possibly wanted. Moses walked like an Egyptian. Moses talked like an Egyptian. Okay? So Moses, really cool first 20 years. But somewhere in Moses' 20s, best we can tell, Moses gets a fatal case of purpose. He begins to realize, oh, my goodness, it's not all about me. And he starts to look around, and, and, and he thinks, man, this isn't all about me. And he, and he thinks something needs to be done about the Hebrew slaves. And, and he does some things, and he, find, and he just says, you know, I'm out. And Moses, long story short, Moses actually leaves leaves Egypt, and he goes into the wilderness, and he spends the next 40 years of his life. We might even say wastes the next 40 years of his life, the best years of his life in the wilderness as a shepherd, 40 years. And really, that's all we pretty much know. He, he was a shepherd. He took care of sheep. Uh, and Moses didn't know the end of Moses' story at this point. But then God shows up on the scene in Moses' life, and, and he allows Moses to step onto the pages of history and step onto the pages of this story that God has been weaving from the beginning. And Moses gets to step on to the page. He gets to show up in histor historical context, and everything changes for Moses. Moses' um, perspective on time is very significant. 
And it's from this perspective that Moses wrote the oldest psalm in the Hebrew Bible, the 90th Psalm. Now, a psalm is really just a poem. And in this, in this poem, Moses has a very significant perspective concerning our time and how we should view it. And this is what Moses says. I'm going to kind of give you the, the overview right now. Moses basically said that when it comes to time, context is everything. He says context matters. Context is everything when it comes to viewing the time that we have. To see our time correctly, we have to view it through the proper context. So we're going to jump into the Old Covenant, Psalm 90. We're going to start in verse 12, which is actually the end of what we're going to do this morning. We're going to just start at the end, and then we're going to backtrack and work our way back up to it. So Psalm 90, verse 12, Moses said, he's actually praying to God at this point. He says, teach us to number our days. Speaking to God, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now, you may be thinking, yeah, I've heard that. Okay, cool. I've heard that before. Um, but now we're going to go to the beginning of Psalm 90, and we're going to see the whole thing in context. So we're going to go to verse 1, Psalm 90, verse 1. Lord, this is Moses. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world. And then he says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, I like that, from everlasting to everlasting. So right off the top here in the 90th Psalm, Moses gives a statement to allow us to better understand time in proper context. Moses says, hey, do you want to understand the context of your life, the context of the time that you have on this earth? He says, look, the bookends of life, they are not your birth and they're not your death. That's not the bookends of life. Moses says in that second verse, he says, the bookends of life is this, it's everlasting to everlasting. And God's in the middle of that, everlasting to everlasting. He's just weaving this big, great, grand story, moving the pawns around and operating inside of this bookends of everlasting to everlasting. That's the proper context, Moses says, to understanding our life, which is our time. Then he says in verse 3, he says, uh, you turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. Emphasis mine. Now, no matter how, uh, maybe not, maybe that's how Moses said it, I don't know. No matter how popular you are, Moses is saying here, no matter how famous you are, no matter how significant you are, no matter how much that you believe you have accomplished, God simply says, return to dust. Now, if anyone had the ability and could have crowed about their accomplishments and their significance, it would have been Moses. Because at this point, he's done a lot. But even Moses says in, in verse 3, he says, no, nah, my life, it's just dust to dust. It, it doesn't really amount to much. Then he says, a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Now, this is pretty cool. Moses says that, hey, a day is like a thousand years to God. So a day in my life, ah, that's like a thousand years to God. So think about it like this. The, a thousand years ago, that was about the last crusade. Not the movie, but the last crusade, the actual historical event that happened, um, that when the Europe, you know, Europe crusade in the Holy Land, that was about a thousand years ago. So Moses is basically saying, hey, like a day for us, that's, that's kind of like the distance of the time that's elapsed since the, the last crusade into the Holy Lands. That's like, a, that's context. That, that's, that's context. Then Moses like ratchets it down a little bit more in the rest of the verse. And he says, you know what? That's not even it. He says, a day, or a it's, it's like... It's like a watch in the night. A day, a day is like a, it's like, like a, it's like a watch in the night. A watch in the night was, um, was three to four hours. Three to four hours was a watch in the night. So like a thousand years to God is like three or, you know, it's three or four hours to him. Or a thousand years to me is three or four hours to him. I mean, he really ratchets it down there. So a thousand years to me is like, you know, three or four hours to God. 
If you did the math on that, and I wouldn't, but if you did the math on that, think about how long my life is from God's perspective. Right. Context matters. So then he goes on. He says in verse 5, Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They're like the new grass of the morning. In the morning springs up, but by the evening it's dry and withered. So again, perspective. Context in these first few verses. It's, it's this. Our life, gone. That's it. That is my life. My birth, my death, that's it. From God's perspective. Context. We're born, we live, we die, and it doesn't take long from God's perspective. Now Moses' point is not, your life doesn't matter. It seems like it. Well, you read that and you're like, man, gosh, what is the point? That's not the point. Moses is not saying your life doesn't matter, even though it kind of feels that way. His big point, the point he is making in these first few verses is simply this. Our lives are so brief. There's such a, a blip in the big picture of everlasting to everlasting. They're so short that it really, it's futile for any of us to try and create anything meaningful on our own. Because we don't have enough time. So when you say and I say I don't have enough time, you're right. We don't. We just aren't considering that statement in proper context. We don't have enough time. Moses is saying that really our only hope for purpose, which everyone wants purpose, our only hope for significance, everyone wants significance, it's to take the moments of time that we have and to make them fit into this grand story that God is weaving from everlasting to everlasting. Moses is saying, hey, the context of your life, the context of your time, using your time is this. If it's all about you, if it's all about me, if everything revolves around me as if I were the sun, you're wasting your time. Because we don't have enough time for any of this to matter. But by looking at our time, Moses is saying, through the magnifying glass of everlasting to everlasting, with God in the middle working, moving the chess pieces, and weaving this great big story, and then we add the element of he has invited us, as he invited Moses, he has invited us into the story. That's where we find meaning, and that's where we find purpose. And then the course of our time becomes significant. Now we're going to jump to verse 10. And I, I think these next three verses are so cool. Moses says, our days may come to 70 years or 80. 32, 3300 years ago, and that verse still applies. Our years may come to 70 or 80 years if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow. And then he says in verse 11, he says, if only we knew. If only we knew. Implication, we can't. I can't know, I can't comprehend, and I can't understand. But Moses says, if only we knew. The power of your anger, speaking of God, your wrath, your anger, your bigness. In other places, in the, other places this Hebrew word is translated face. If we only understood the power of your anger. We can't, but if we could, then he says, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Okay, that's a, that's a tough you know, hard way to, it was hard to translate that into English. So I'm, I'm going to kind of tell you, I'm going to let you know what that means, what I have been told that means. It's a little weird, but I'm going to try to explain it. This is what I was told that means. If we could see God as he is, his bigness, his wrath, his anger, his face, if we could see God as he is, which we can't, but if we could, 
we would give him the reverence that he is due. We would not hesitate to give him our lives. We would not hesitate to give him our time if we could comprehend his greatness. So within the context of time, what the entire psalm has been about to this point, we're in the context of time. If we could see God as he really is, then we would present him with our 70 to 80 years that we have on this earth, our life to our death, in the middle of our everlasting to everlasting. We would give him these 70 to 80 years and we would say, in the context of what you're doing, God, it's yours. Do whatever you want to with it because I don't have enough time to make anything happen. Moses is simply saying that if we could understand God's glory, if we could under, and we can't, but if we could, we would not hesitate to give him our time. We would not hesitate to give him those 70 to 80 years. Now, you would say, well, how does Moses have any ability to talk on God's glory? He, well, Moses is qualified to make such a statement, and here's why. Because as, as much as any person that's ever walked on this earth, Moses actually saw a little bit, a bit of God's glory. He did see it. He saw God's greatness, his bigness, his glory, his face. He actually saw a little bit of it. And it's, it's, in, it's in Exodus. Now, um, real quick aside, if you don't read the Bible, I would read the Bible. Really cool stuff in here. Pretty interesting. But this happens. This is in the book of Exodus. I'm going to give you a little backstory here. So Moses, uh, the Hebrews have been brought out of Egypt. They are now at the foot of Mount Sinai. In other places in the Old Covenant, that's Mount Hebron. Most scholars agree Mount Sinai, Mount Hebron, same thing. And they're at the foot of that mountain. And Moses is up in the mountain and he is, he is connecting and he is having an experience with God. And this is where Moses is given the, the, uh, the law for the second time. Because the first time he broke it. So he's up there and he's getting this law. And he says to God, he says, I want to see your glory. Show me your face. Show me your glory. And God said, and it's all in Exodus, Exodus around chapter 33, chapter 34. He says, I want to see your glory. I want to see your face. I want to see your bigness. And, and God says, you, you can't. I can't do that. You, and I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But uh, he says, I can't. I can't do it. Anyone that sees my, you're going to die. I can't do it. You cannot see it. And Moses keeps, give it a little bit. And God says, okay, I'm going to show you just a little bit of my glory. He says, I'm going to, the way it's, it's translated in, in Exodus 34, he says, I'm going to walk past you. I'm going to kind of cover your eyes. And actually, we find out later that Moses sees God's back, the back of his glory. He says, I don't believe that. It's in there. And, he, and, and Moses sees a little bit of God's glory. Not just a little bit, just a speck. And then in Exodus 34, 29, it says that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant of the law in his hands, and we think about the Ten Commandments, you know, when he comes down, the movie I'm speaking of, um, it says that he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. I don't know exactly. There's not a good translation to explain that. I don't know if he was like radioactive, if he was glowing. I don't know. But something had happened, and it was obvious that something had happened, and it had happened because he had seen God's glory. Eat a bit of it. Moses didn't even see the whole thing. He just sees the back of God. And so more than anyone that has ever walked on this earth, aside from Jesus himself, Moses is qualified to speak about God's glory. And this is what he said in the 90th Psalm. He said, if any of us walking today in this room, watching online, me, could understand and could get a grasp of God's glory, how incredible it is. We would not hesitate to give him our time. 
We would not, we would say, God, here's my 70 to 80 years, and I want to be a part of this story that you are weaving from everlasting to everlasting. It's yours. Do with it as you wish. But Moses said, we can't. We can't. He said, but if we could see it and we could survive it, we would spend our time more purposefully. We would invest our time more purposefully. Now, we finally go back to that original verse that we started with where Moses is praying and he's asking God, in context of everything that we have just read, everything that we've just gone through, the, 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 the context of time and our, our place in time and our place in between everlasting and everlasting and all of that, Moses wraps it up by saying, because of all that, God, in verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I think that verse has a little bit more context after we read the first 11 verses. Teach us to number our days. In other words, God, teach us to live. Teach us to use our time as if our days are numbered, which they are. We don't like to talk about it, but they're numbered. Teach us to live as if our days are numbered. Now, I'm going to be real honest. I would never dream of telling anyone in this room Anyone watching online, I would never dream of telling anyone how they should spend their time, how they should manage their time, how they should, I would never try to tell you how you should be a steward of your time. If you want to spend all of your time at the lake, that is your business. I, that is not mine. I, if you want to spend all of your time at the ball field, at every travel ball tournament that ever comes around, and there's a bunch of them, that's fine. That's your time, your life. I would never tell you how to spend your time. If you want to spend it surfing the net, sitting in your recliner in front of the television on your phone, swiping on social media, go for it. That's not my place. If you want to spend all your time at church or in a small group, go for it. Not my place. Your time, not mine. If you want to spend all your time at work with your family, hunting, fishing, shopping, whatever, it's your time. I would never dream of telling anyone how to spend their time because it is yours. It is your life. It's not my life. And I've not been created to be a control freak over your life. I've only been created to be a control freak over my life and my time. That's self-control. But I do feel like I can say this. I, can, I believe I could say, if Moses were in this room right now, how cool would that be? But if he were, if Moses were in this room right now, I think he would tell all of us, myself included, do you want to be significant? Do you want to have purpose? then it's not all about you. It's not all about me. Because I don't have enough time to make it happen. I think Moses would say this, trust me, I've seen a little bit of God's glory. I've seen, I've seen the back. A little bit. I think he would say, and if you could understand how incredible God's glory is, you would have the context of really how short our time really is in relationship to everlasting everlasting. He would, he would say, hey, I think if you could see God's glory and you could understand this in the proper context, you would not hesitate. I would not hesitate to offer my 70, 80, 90 years or whatever it might be and say, God, you do whatever with my time, however you want to have it's yours. I'm out. You take it and I'll just let me be a part of this story. So we have two next, we actually have one next step, kind of a step one and step one B this week. They're going to be on the screen. And our first next step is this. In relationship to all of the stuff we've talked about, what Moses says about time, context of time, significance of time, not having enough time, all of that, we would encourage you for the next seven days to do something very practical with your time. We would encourage you to inventory how you're using your time. 
Just take an inventory of it. How are you using your time? How are you managing your time? How, are, how am I spending my time, investing my time, wasting my time? How am I using my time? Am I using my time on myself? All about me, the world's revolving around me. It's everything that I'm doing, my job, my family, my, my, uh, my leisure activities, my this, my that. Is it all about me, myself and I? How can I gain more status? How can I get more significance? How can I, so on and so forth? Is there any time left over at all for me to hand over to God to be a part of this big story that he's weaving and he's moving the pawns and in between everlasting and everlasting? How I many really take inventory? Like, for real, like, really take the time. Write it down. Put it in an Excel sheet. Put it on a Google Doc. Look at time as if you were budgeting it like you were trying to get control of your money. Take your time and write it down. How did I spend my time this week? And was it all about me? Was I the center of it? And then kind of our 1B is this. Just talk to God about it. Just talk to God about it and, say, and ask how you're managing the time that you've been given. And be real and be honest and be authentic. Ask how you can be. When you talk to God, ask how can I be a part of this story that spans from everlasting to everlasting. Because honestly, outside of his plan, outside of his story, I simply don't have enough time. Let's pray. God, I don't have enough time. And I, I know that. And I, and I try to take time to for myself and for my family. And I try to make my time so often be all about me, revolving around me, and what I want to do, my pursuits, my interests, my hobbies. But God, in context of your everlasting to everlasting, and in that context, God, I don't have enough time. I'm just a blip on this timeline. So God, right now, we just ask, and this is a me, this is a me too part of this prayer, we just ask, Help us to do as Moses said, to understand our time and to understand the time that we've been given and to understand that time within context. And God, just give us the courage to offer you those 70, 60, 70, 80, 90 years that you've given us inside of this huge everlasting to everlasting and just help us to have the courage to just say, God, I'm giving it to you. I want to be a part of your big story that you've been weaving since the beginning just like Moses was, and then and only then can we truly understand our time. Give us the courage to know what to do with what we've heard and just take us throughout this week. And it's in your son's name that we ask these things. Amen.